Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from the Pile Center at the University of Wisconsin in lovely Madison. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am joined here, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SupChina.com. Greet the people here and at home, Jeremy. Hello, people. That's it? That's it. That's, that's what we're getting today. You get a f- more fulsome greeting normally. <laughs> anyway, we would like to thank the African Studies Program, the Center for East Asian Studies, and the Institute for Regional and International Studies here at Wisconsin for bringing us out here uh, to one of my very favorite towns. Uh, the real reason that I insisted that we do this is because last summer I was out at an adorable little cottage on the Wisconsin River not far from here with uh, my college roommate, and he introduced me to Neil. And at the time, now you don't see it now, but it, I was my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe how much Neil looked like my friend Jeremy, who's now, of course, hidden behind this ridiculous growth on his face. In, and and I, Neil has since cut his hair, which was kind of a full Jufro before. And and the two of them, both being South Africans, you know, uh, of 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 that particular ethnic extraction, they were they, they looked so much alike. And, and if you get a chance, to take take a close look, you will still see it. it I, I, I think you so were drunk, my Kaiser, because we don't look anything alike. You do, you do. <laughs> Uh, I, I brought I brought Jeremy out here specifically. I I, I assented to doing the show out here and flying out here to Madison. Uh, well, first of all, because I love the town, and second, because I really did want to put them side by side and get a picture of that. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry about the beard and all of that, uh, but uh, we will continue. Anyway, let's let's hear a, a, a big round for for uh, for the the good folks who brought us out here. Yeah. The Seneca Podcast is a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina.com. SupChina puts out an excellent free daily email newsletter, which uh, I edit, so um, of course it's I'm going to say it's excellent, um, with uh, business, political, and cultural news from China. Uh, you can also download apps for Android or uh, Apple uh, iPhones, um, and uh, we're producing a lot more video, so... Uh, do have a look at subchina.com. Yeah, so definitely sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we may have actually brought you here on the mildly false pretenses. I mean, aside from this whole doppelganger thing, uh, the promotional material that we put out for this event was a little premature, and we we said that we were going to be talking about African lives in China, and we will. We'll talk a little bit about that. But in preparing for this conversation and, and reading some of our guests' recent papers, uh, we found quite a trove of ideas that we felt really needed to be shared more broadly, and we think that in the next hour you're going to see why. So we're delighted to be joined by Lena Ben-Abdallah, who just took a position, as as Neil said, in my home state of North Carolina at Wake Forest University, uh, where she teaches political science. Lena received her PhD from the University of Florida, uh, where her doctoral work focused on South-South relations and uh, the power dynamics of the global South more generally. Lena, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Big round for Lena. 
All right, now we're, we're done with all the nonsense. Uh, Lena, the thing that uh, really impressed me reading your recent work is uh, you're not focused um, on minutia and overly specific cases, but instead you tackle some of the real big picture topics. Um, before we get into some of your work in, in detail, uh, can we talk about how you got interested in this particular area? What led you to the subject of China's involvement with Africa? You know, was it just academic interest? Was it something personal? Did you have you know, a dog in this fight, as it were? Um, you know, I, I mean, I confess as a student, uh, kind of uh, typical lefty student, what my sister used to call a twig, a third world groupie. Uh, my favorite <laughs> Chinese slogan was, you know, uh, Africa, Asia and Latin America unite and destroy American imperialism. So I, I kind of <laughs> anyway, that's so me. That, what about you? That's your dog in this fight. Then. <laughs> that's okay, I see. Well, may, maybe I don't have a dog in the fight quite clearly, but. But um, so I got interested in this, uh, both, both from a personal and from an academic intellectual perspective. I um, had the opportunity to uh, work, to teach in, in China, in Dalian. Um, and so prior to being in Florida, just to backtrack a bit, uh, I was doing, getting a master's degree from Missouri State University. And then there was a branch campus that the school had in Dalian. And so I got the opportunity to go teach uh, and, and live in China for a year. And I did that, and um, a lot of my students in my class in Dalian were uh, from Nigeria, from uh, several sort of petro-states uh, from the African continent. And um, yeah, the, I think my first kind of intellectual um, kind of encounter with this China-Africa relations uh, came as a curiosity as, and then from conversations I had with students about their interests, how what brought them to Dalian, um, and kind of those questions, and uh, and I think that's what kind of sparked my curiosity in general about sort of the relations between China and Africa. And then I went on to get a PhD in international relations and focused on foreign policy. Um, and then I kind of combined uh, training in African studies with my interest in um, China's development model and China-Africa relations, and that got me kind of where I am now. I should note that actually when, when we started putting out materials for this, uh, there were people who objected. They looked at the pictures of the three of us and said, what? No Africans? Actually, there were among the three of us, there are two Africans. Let's make that very clear. We have Jeremy was actually born and, and raised in, in Johannesburg. And uh, you're from Constantine, is that right? From, from Algeria, right, right. Uh, so Lena is from from Algeria. So we're representing the north and the south, but uh, you know we're in the middle. But I think that's that, that's that's fair. So just just to get that out of the way, right? Mm -hmm. We do have two Africans. On, I, I can pledge. I've never even, unfortunately, never been, but I will rectify that at some point. Anyway, uh, when China in Africa was still something uh, fairly new, let's say back in two thousand six, when the first FOCAC, the the forum on China Africa cooperation was uh, held, in, not the first, but the first really big one. And China's ambitions in Africa were still a phenomenon uh, that was fairly new to the media, to uh, to actually academia as well. Uh, the, the, the narrative quickly became very binary. So either you believed uh, that, that China was a neocolonial power, that it was out to just extract, suck dry all the mineral wealth from Africa to um, exploit its people, maybe to colonize it as a second continent, and uh, and then you know to along the way support as many kleptocrats as possible and derail any hope of uh, democratic trans transition. Or 
you believed that China's motives were pure as the driven snow, that, you know, the China, Chinese people are somehow genetically incapable of something like colonization. After all, look at Zheng He, you know, this eunuch Muslim admiral who sailed the seas in, in the 15th century and never did anything naughty or bad or colonialized or colonized anybody. So but between these two extremes, you think that now, now 11 years after Foucault, that has has surely we've all we've moved away from that in the mainstream narrative and it's much more nuanced and 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 uh yes are can can i be so so presumptuous i um i think i i'm not sure about how much we've moved on beyond the binary actually i mean there's definitely a lot more work done uh, a lot of a lot of research and scholarly works um have, have you you see more on uh china africa now but at the same time i think the binary is kind of still there mm. um uh, you see it not only in scholarship but also in like sort of uh, mainstream kind of media reporting um and you know um like you said a lot of times or even you see it in conferences for example uh, questions that come a lot of times is just sort of um either the arguments are taken to either sanitize sort of China's foreign policy and practices in Africa or kind of demonize. demonize them, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so there's, 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 unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's quite the challenge of being a sort of a scholar in China-Africa relations is just, um, a lot of times you're, you, you're kind of pinned in one group or the other. Yeah. And it just immediately there's this, um, hunch or instinct to try to figure you out. I mean, are you doing this or the other? Um, that's, that, that thing is just sort of still, very much present. Would, you know, you I, I think that happens with China generally. You know, uh, you, you get you know pushed into a narrative like you hate the Communist Party or you don't. You know, they're either the greatest wealth creators the world has ever seen or they're nasty totalitarians. I mean, that in the media, that is still very much a. Oh, I mean, unfortunately, it's also the same in coverage of Africa, right? I mean, as we all we're all very familiar. Yeah. So let's get away from that. I mean, Lena, you, you make an intriguing case that studying and coming to an understanding of China's approach to Africa can really shed light on what China's broader geopolitical aims really are, uh, which I think is really fascinating. Could you walk, walk, walk us through how, how this works um, and about Beijing's ideas of global governance, what you call global governance with Chinese characteristics? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I came to that just from the idea of um, kind of seeing how uh, China-Africa relations or Africa-China relations kind of inform in many ways China's foreign policy, broadly speaking. Um, and so as we know, and as you kind of introduced uh, earlier, um, China's foreign policy has is, is, is become uh, more and more kind of looking forward, right? So going abroad kind. And a, a big portion, a big chunk of China's going abroad policies happens to be China's foreign policy in Africa and towards African states. And so a lot of what China's been doing in Africa uh, when with African uh, states um, serves as learning uh, opportunity for China to in, in its sort of broader behavior, right? Um, and so I look at um, sort of the you know, what I call global governance with Chinese characteristics is this, this idea of FOCAC, kind of like you mentioned, this idea of summit diplomacy, um, which is kind of uh, something that China started in the early 2000s with Africa, but it's also something that's been copied by other powers. Right? So now Turkey has a similar summit with Africa, South Africa, uh, South Korea has a similar summit kind of diplomacy uh, in Africa, Japan has something similar. And so it's kind of, uh, it started 
being this Chinese kind of diplomatic tool, but it's it's becoming kind of something that's copied by other countries. Uh, but also at the same time, China has started this summit diplomacy in Africa, and it's also exporting it. There's like no no uh, summit with uh, Latin American countries, um, and so it's it's kind of a format that I see very much China have as um, experimented with and uh, applied in Africa, but also learned from those experiences uh, in 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 pra- in, in broadening uh, right. So this this kind of diplomacy, and um, so, and so what would be some of the specific features of, of that uh, of that approach for I mean I some of them come to mind right away like the whole resources for infrastructure kind of trades right uh, we will build this uh, mine this railroad connected to the port and we'll build the port itself and you pay us in in copper right I mean, that sort of that sort of thing they're replicating that and then they're replicating it where for example in belt and road initiative projects mm-hmm. is that would be okay okay great mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be an example of, of, of a policy or some of a characteristic of this sort of Chinese global governance that um, we saw very much uh, applied in Africa and then much bigger from Africa to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but that's one of them. The, the, another characteristic could be just looking at... Um, so the idea of not giving foreign aid in terms of fungible money, uh-huh. uh, but more like uh, investments. And so, like you mentioned, this barter system and the, the, the investment in infrastructure projects rather than, oh, here's a, you know, a, a sum of money uh, that's uh, allocated to a government and then it's spent in whichever way. Uh, so the Chinese kind of model is a mix of investments and foreign aid, and it's not completely, you know, just fungible aid. So that's one characteristic also of, of, um, China's uh, uh, both in its practices with African countries, but now we see it applied broadly into the One Belt One Road. I mean, obviously, the AIIB, which is the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, is not a foreign aid bank. Right? right. There's no word aid in it, uh, and it's just a, it's investment. It's not development aid, right? And so that is uh, another characteristic of sort of governance with Chinese characteristics. Do you think that China is conscious of this as a specific, as a particular development model? I mean, is Beijing pushing a Beijing consensus, as it used to be called? I mean, I'm not sure. So it's a really good question, and I'm not sure we really can get to the question of intentions and the consciousness. But is there a model? Yes, there is. Okay. Um, and to the extent that this model is also actually being applied, so now you have the Ethiopian government openly and publicly saying we are following China's development model. To that extent, there has to be a certain model. And this is like a developmentalist state kind of model, which is state-centered and state kind of led development. Um, And so whether the Chinese government is pushing that as the model for the Ethiopian government to follow or not, that's kind of a you know, a different question to to look into. But there is certainly a distinct uh, way of development. Mm, yeah. That's Finally, one before I hand over to Jeremy, I, I want to ask one more follow-up, which is, do you sense that China is conscious of the, the sorts of criticisms that have been leveled against this model as it's been practiced? For example, that it does, you know, enable corrupt uh, di- dictatorial powers, that it is not environmentally sustainable. Are, are they aware of these criticisms and have they taken them on board and are they are they learning from from this? Yeah, you know, one of the benefits of the of FOCAC, which is the China-Africa uh, sort of summit um, or forum, is that it is an opportunity, it's a platform for leaders from China and from different African countries to sit together and talk about these things. 
And so that the, the every three years, and we just see the summit that happens every three years, mm-hmm. but the meetings, the committees that prepare for it, and that the meetings and committees that are after, that meet afterwards, uh, are just a, a lot of those meetings that talk about these issues. So it, it just fosters this kind of communication and feedback loop mm-hmm. uh, uh, that is a platform for um, people to sort of voice the, these issues and for both sides to kind of work on the issues that that are mentioned. So I think there's very much a consciousness of these challenges and these drawbacks of, um, you know, sort of Chinese investments and huge kind of infrastructure projects. And um, so whether these are necessarily kind of tackled like head on um, kind of depends on the issue. It depends on the place. It depends on the project itself. There's been cases like... um, so corporate social responsibility was something that's been mentioned back and forth, uh, just over and over again, where if you have a huge kind of investment company coming in to build a huge, you know, dam, for example, uh, what are the consequences on sort of indigenous and local populations? What are the consequences on sustainable development and environment? What is so whereas perhaps maybe 10 years ago, these questions were not in the radar of Chinese state-led uh, corporates when they go to Africa and build projects. But now these are questions that are uh, kind routinely of confronted and routinely being raised. <clears throat> Whether they are addressed successfully or not depends on a whole host of things, including local governments, including the actual company itself, including different considerations. Uh, but they are more and more raised. Mm. Lena, you seem on balance uh, rather positive uh, about uh, China's approach uh, in Africa, but you do identify some problems. One of these is China's ambivalence and general experience in working with civil society actors, NGOs, advocacy groups, labor unions. Um, China, of course, uh, keeps uh, these forces under very, very tight control within China itself. Um, how, how does this hurt China's efforts internationally, especially in Africa? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to uh, sometimes some development projects, I mean, of course, when we talk about sustainable development, one big portion of, of, of the conversation is including all the stakeholders in the negotiation table. So when you try to figure out what exactly the, the, the project is going to have in terms of benefits and drawbacks or challenges to the local communities, you need to speak to, you know, uh, local civil society groups, uh, local organizations uh, about what their potential grievances, what the feed, getting the feedback from them about this development project, what are the, and so if, if, if that kind of part of the society is not included in um, negotiating, which what happens a lot of times is that in the China Chinese model, sort of it, it's state to state kind of relations. And so the negotiations happen between state elites and state elites, and it does not necessarily include uh, members of the local community or local governance representatives or, and so, so that absence uh, has a big uh, effect because then uh, five, ten years later, you realize that there are visible drawbacks to the project that perhaps were not visible from sort of the elite perspective, right? And so that's kind of a big um, challenge. Yeah, it contrasts rather sharply with the American or the Western approach, which maybe uh, works to, with, with NGOs and with other civil society actors almost to the exclusion of dealing mm-hmm. bilaterally with states. Yeah. yeah, that's very correct. Yeah. yeah. 
So another question, I think another one of the problems that you identify uh, is China also lacks experience with dealing with the sorts of security threats that routinely come up um, when they're building large infrastructure projects in the developing world and, and you know, in, in Africa. Now, on, on the one hand, um, China is, you know, gaining more experience in this. We Things like the, the Libya uh, evacuation. Um, and, and in fact, China now, I think, is, I'm pretty sure, has the largest number of, of peacekeeping forces on the ground, of UN peacekeeping operations, the largest number of blue helmets. And Xi Jinping just recently announced that they were going to increase that number from 3,000 to 5,000. Uh, so and maybe we know we could... Yeah, let's talk about that. Also, I'd, I'd like to know what you think about um, China's military footprint uh, in Africa, uh, you know, aside from the peacekeeping operations. Um, there's this new uh, military base in Djibouti, uh, which just had a uh, live fire exercise just mm. a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about that? Sure. Um, so in terms of China's military or security footprint in, 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 in Africa, I mean, there's um, you don't necessarily... It's not necessarily materialized in or doesn't manifest itself kind of like in the same ways that we normally think of military or security relations. And so there's not much to by ways of boots on the ground, right? So China does not necessarily get involved in you know, security from this military perspective. However, what we see is increasing sort of military to military ties, right? So there are lots of kind of... Um, uh, official uh, drills, official visits by several sort of Chinese military high-ranking officials and 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 their African counterparts. Um, this, the newest development uh, sort of was this Djibouti base, which for the longest time it was called a, a logistics uh, facility right. rather than a, a military base. And uh, sort of the Chinese government kind of gave the reason that because of, you know, fighting off piracy, uh, it takes a, a lot of logistic need, like requires a lot of logistical help. And so it just, uh, t- Chinese felt like, um, you know, a base, a logistical facility base in, in Djibouti will help with that. Um, but obviously, um, the whole idea of not calling it a military base is just to not come off as this aggressive kind of power that's come in and looking just like any other power, you know, French or, U- or British or U.S. kind of powers, which, at, you know, you you you, ha- you start with one military base and then you, you had one more and, and, and it goes on. And so the, the naming of it as a logistical base or logistical facility um, um, essentially was aiming at kind of portraying China as kind of just um, um, a peaceful, sort of in right. the discourse of a peaceful rising power, right, as opposed to a hawkish kind of power that's establishing military bases. But as you said, um, just this week on the 26th, they had the first kind of fire uh, drill and... And and, um, and it was widely publicized in Chinese state yeah, media. Yeah, it, it, yeah. yeah, and now it's, it's back to calling it a military base rather than a logistics uh, facility. So, um, yeah. So. I think uh, it, it's that, that segues rather nicely into another uh, idea that emerges from some of your recent writing, which I think was, was really fascinating. This idea that China sees uh, its capacity building, its, its development activities uh, as part of this development security nexus, this idea that mm-hmm. security interests are advanced by uh, capacity building in China, by, in, in Africa, by uh, so this sort of soft power approach rather than a hard power approach. Uh, to solve these, I mean, on the one hand, this this does seem like well, a kind of obvious. I mean, it, it's it's kind of 
a, com- a compelling idea um, and, and, and not one that I think is very controversial. Poverty alleviation and skills training jobs, you know, reduced unemployment. Of course, that's going to uh, improve the security situation uh, on the ground. I'm sure the U.S. sees the situation the same, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't the, wouldn't the U.S. Uh, be doing the same thing? I mean, we learned that lesson maybe the hard way in countries like Afghanistan and, and Iraq where a hard power isn't going to work. They, they, you need to uh, nation build. Or whatever. Is this something maybe that China has learned from watching America fall on its face? I mean, it's, it's very possible, but it's also something that's kind of also inherent in China's domestic politics also. So sort of the idea of uh, gaining political legitimacy by providing economic opportunity, right? So that is something that... Um, so Performance this, legitimacy. Right. right. And so, exactly. And so that, that kind of ties to this idea of providing economic growth opportunities leads to stability or is the root or the essence of stability in that sense. And so it's something that, that, that you see in, in practiced in China domestically just as much as it is in its foreign policy or foreign relations in Africa. But I think the, at the very base, like you said, it makes a lot of sense, right? So the idea that tend into uh, like poverty issues and development and economic growth you know kind of has the effect of alleviating grievances and that leads in you know to stability but more so more so it is uh, a way for sort of the chinese government to get away with 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 not participating in um, you know, military, uh, diplomacy, right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a very low cost sort of for the Chinese government also to make the argument that investments in development lead to security. So, hey, we're contributing, right? So don't view China as this power that's not contributing to peace and security in the world. Uh, by defining or by viewing security as connected to development, China is therefore participating in peace and security and global, you know, peace. Uh, and so, so it's also a response to this critique sometimes of, of China being sort of a free rider when it comes to global security issues, that it is a big power and big powers are kind of investing big in terms of global security. So what's China doing? So many times, so you hear that criticism. And so, a, a, a kind of a, a cost-effective way to get away or respond to that criticism is to connect security to development, right? And so to make the argument that actually China is contributing to security, just not seeing it. Uh, it's not in the same way that you can imagine, right? So this kind of... I, I'm wondering how cynical you think that that is part of the Chinese government. <laughs> I don't think it's cynical. I think I mean, don't you, you don't buy that idea? I mean, I think it's compelling on its face. Uh, I sure. I, okay. I mean, uh, it, it makes sense. But I mean, uh, I think the way you've just talked about it, Lena makes it sound to me like you know they are partly using it as a just a way of talking about what they were going to do anyway. Um, anyway, um, I, speaking of uh, criticizing China, that's usually my job around here. Um, uh, you, we've talked mostly about the positive um, aspects. I think generally we've been fairly positive, but you have identified shortcomings to China's approach in Africa. Do you want to talk about those? Shortcomings it? specifically about the security development nexus. Yeah. Right? Well, um, so yeah, I mean, one of the shortcomings of the security development nexus is that obviously we don't know how much it works, right? So there were, for a long time, the, so the situation in South Sudan, right? So was, was an example of this. And so there's a lot of faith put into this development, right? So at, at some point, at some point, the, the GDP, if that's what we use to measure economic growth, increased. But at the same time, security and stability did not necessarily uh, get better, 
right? And so, uh, it, to that extent, that's a, that's a, that's an example of how it doesn't work or where it didn't work. Uh, so this kind of put in all the this faith in economic growth. Uh, being sort of this the, the solution to conflict uh, did not work. Right, in, in it's, that it's, it's not the one determining variable right. for right, right. Right, and so if if one is to view peace building or peace peace building necessarily uh, from this perspective of development, then 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 there is this case where it actually there's conflict, even though GDP figures look to be doing better. Um, so. So that's like, that's one challenge. Um, I mean, another challenge is if we look at, like I said earlier, Ethiopia, which happened to be sort of one of the case studies I, I kind of, uh, studied. Um, so it kind of, like I said, the government sort of follows publicly a Chinese model of development, which is again following the statist or developmentalist state where the government, uh, kind of decides, uh, everything that has to do with uh, development and development projects. And now, uh, we, there, there's been some projects, uh, that are related to development that kind of caused or led to lots of kind of appraisals and issues with, uh, uh, local populations and minorities kind of being kind of, you know, stripped off their land because the government decided that that piece of land, uh, needs to become a, a project of, of a, some factory or infrastructure project or so those, that kind of causes a lot of, um, issues with social justice, right? And so that's another challenge to this developmentalist state uh, model, right? So that um, rights of, of local indigenous Exported directly from China. They do the same thing in China. Yeah. Uh, let's I mean, build we, another white elephant project that yeah. ridiculous overcapacity. Yeah, and the whole idea of just if you needed a piece of land and just, you just move people out of it right. and then you use it for development project, but then there's all kinds of issues about identity of local people with, mm. who, you know, identify with certain... And so um, those are issues that come come up again from this model. Let's talk about this other really interesting area that you you talk about in terms of capacity building. That's capacity building in media. Uh, Jeremy, I think it was last year you took part in this uh, forum in at, at Wits in in Johannesburg, right? Yeah. Uh, where you were actually like the the moderator or the the MC for the whole event. Yeah. And that that was uh, George Soros, the Open Society Initiative. They had sponsored this sort of. Capacity building for for you know uh, for African journalists uh, and Chinese journalists and, and Chinese actually, journalists. Yeah. So this is sort of the other side. This is that we were talking about. This this is Chinese state sponsored uh, training for uh, journalists in in Africa writing about China and and China Africa issues. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, a, a cynic might see this as just an effort to kind of seed the counter narrative uh, at the very beginning to sort I, of I don't think you have to be a cynic to see that that is what is happening <laughs> well I, I have to imagine what it would be like to be cynical so tell us what is happening though um, that, that, that's an interesting project um, I don't think a lot of people are aware that this is happening um, and then maybe you can also talk a little bit more about the, the broader media efforts of uh, Chinese state media in Africa, I know that, for example, CGTN is is, is quite CGTN. quite successful uh, in, in in many ways in Africa. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you could perhaps classify China's media's <coughs> efforts in in Africa or presence um, in two broad ways. Sort of the kind of the material presence, the mm -hmm. aspect, and then the trainings aspect, which is not visible, right? And so the visible. Part of it is what you just mentioned, the headquarters of C CTGN, right? CGTN, yeah. CGTN, which used to be CCTV, 
quite like a couple of years ago. Um, and then also, uh, which, which if you go to Nairobi, I mean, you see the headquarters, it's an amazing kind of building with state of the art kind of, and it's the only, I think the only, foreign state uh foreign media that has an uh, a whole studio like not just an, an office which uh, many others like ccn cnn or bbc they would have just a, a regional a bureau, right. a bureau but not uh, an entire sort of station media production station. studio and broadcast yes, and everything. Yeah. yes yes and uh, of course like xinhua also has a uh, offices also in 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 nairobi there there, there are all kinds of different um cooperations uh, between sort of uh, Chinese state media and, 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 and local medias as well. There's this um, initiative to kind of diffuse news, prod, uh, news media through cell phones, um, to cell phones through apps. Uh, that's through uh, Huawei and, and other and ZTE. Uh, so that's like on the one hand, that's one one way or one category. The other category, as I mentioned, is this entire people to people or kind of trainings provided to African journalists and students of uh, media and, and communication studies. Um, and these trainings, they can be like both um, kind of long term, short term trainings. Uh, essentially, they uh, consist in inviting uh, journalists from Africa to go experience what China is firsthand. And the idea is that that kind of cultural exposure to China will give them a much fairer uh, background to analyze and to report on China-Africa stories when they go back to their original jobs, rather than rely on what BBC says about China-Africa, rather than rely on what Al Jazeera says about China-Africa, rather than rely on CNN's coverage of France 24, coverage of China-Africa, these journalists have now first-hand experience of what China is. It's becoming more personal to them. So when they are reporting on China-Africa stories, they are better equipped with that sort of first-hand exposure rather than secondary reporting uh, from other... See, there is another non-cynical explanation. (laughs) (laughs) And do you think it's working? Well, I think... It's early though, right? I mean, it's still early days. It's it's very popular, yeah. right? So these trainings. Who doesn't like a, a junket to China? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the the yeah. <laughs> so the 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 numbers are increasing. So every time that there's a FOCAC, then the that's what that the, usually the action plan that comes out of COFOCAC announces what's going to happen in the next three years, and those numbers keep doubling every time that there's a China Africa summit. The numbers keep going, you know, twice. Um, and so these are popular trainings. What the way that the other way that that's kind of interesting, where you know it's kind of uh, appealing, that like it creates attraction and appeal appeal to China is also. I met a lot of journalists who first were invited on these trainings, but then later decided to go back to China to get a higher education degree on their own dime. Hmm. So, so I can kind of the experience is appealing enough for them to go back and get degrees, even outside of the trainings they would decide and then apply for admissions in universities and such um now it also i remember kind of sitting in a, as a participant observer in a group of um uh trainees uh who are from different african countries and some of the questions that they were asking one another as they were discussing this is well what do I owe the government now? I mean, because I'm I'm being brought here on Chinese money and the government is sponsoring my trip. Uh, am I supposed to be more loyal in, in my reporting of China Africa because of this? Right. So these were questions which were asked and talked about um, among the journalists and the and, and the trainees. 
uh, who were who were participating in these programs, um, you know, and 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 um, the answers that were thrown out in the discussion include things like, no, you're not supposed to necessarily change the way you report. Uh, but you're supposed to learn more about the culture, learn more about the history, and learn more about the ways of doing and what really, you know, uh, it means to be in China. And then, um, so, so, I mean, those were questions that, that were asked and, and issues and challenges that were, um, kind of, um, uh, expressed by, by a lot of journalists. And I also got in my interviews, expressions of um, saying, hey, what China cares at least, because China is inviting us to come learn about this country. Uh, China wants us, you know, Chinese government is what China means in this case, because the Chinese government is paying for those trips, uh, is interested in um, building these bridges uh, between journalists. And uh, if, uh, say, Western countries are not happy with the narrative, then they they should show the same kind of level of care um, and um, uh, interest in inviting journalists and, and such, and so, um, so there, there, there's always in the background this kind of comparison to what Western media says about China, Africa, but you know, what the West does for Africa that China doesn't, or how you know there's always this looming comparison with what the U.S. and European countries are doing. Um, right. So yeah, and and media is where you see it the most. This is like almost a, there's a narrative and there's a counter narrative, and then so there's this. That is media's job. <laughs> Another area you focus on that I, I don't think I've seen addressed in much of the literature is how China uses knowledge and expertise and training to advance power, what you call the knowledge power nexus. This seems like an important component of China's approach in Africa. Can you tell us about things like the agricultural demonstration centers they've set up? Yeah, um, so the, the, um, the, the idea behind the agricultural demonstration centers was um, you know, obviously, a lot of African countries rely a lot on agriculture for their um, e e economies, and China has had a lot of experience with the agriculture. Um, and the idea is that you know the the the, the similarities uh, in the, in the sense of uh, having a lot of experience with this in China would kind of contribute or would help train. Uh, farmers and agriculture specialists from African countries, and um, and so the, the so it came to this 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 model of setting up demonstration centers, which um, essentially the sort of Chinese companies would or um, lease a piece of land uh, in say Morogoro, for example, in Tanzania, and then build a, a demonstration center, and then ho host kind of trainings and workshops for local. Um, agriculture experts to learn way like, like breeding and to talk about food security, talk about uh, techniques of specific um, how to get like more yields from one you know small pot plot of land. Um, and so these demonstration projects is also something that that get, gets announced in FOCAC summits. And mm -hmm. I think the last one in 2015 kind of announced uh, the. Uh, construction of 30 more demonstration centers. So every year there's, you know, there, there, there's announcements of maybe 10, maybe 15. The last one in 2015, in 2015, um, it announced kind of the, uh, intention to construct uh, 30 more of these demonstration centers. Most of the time, most of the time, the Chinese corporates that kind of lease the land to build the demonstration centers, they get to, um, uh, kind of have oversight over the, the demonstration center for a number of years, sometimes eight, sometimes 10 years, 20 years before they turn over the keys to the local governments. Um, 
And you see a lot of times kind of, um, all kinds of, all kinds of stories kind of about how there's sometimes language barriers, right? So when you have a team of agriculture experts flown into, say, Morogoro, for example, I mean, that's a kind of an English, you know, kind of an Anglophone or English speaking country to a certain extent. But in other places, when it comes to, I don't know, Lusophone or Francophone Afri uh, African countries, um, the trainings and these demonstrations uh, don't necessarily get across because of language barriers, if not other barriers. Um, and so sort of the quality or, or the effectiveness of the content of these trainings remains to be kind of looked at case by case. Um, but, but the idea here is that the, the idea here is that the transfers of knowledge and transfers of skills kind of promotes China as the expert in the region, right? It promotes the idea of Chinese expertise. It brands China as, um, a, a trainer, right? An expert country that, um, you know, has a lot of knowledge in this and then sort of the African receiver or learner or the, 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 the on the other side of it is kind of, um, right. seeking kind of expertise from the Chinese uh, what, what are some of the other areas where China is pursuing extensive vocational and skills trading? Uh, are there other, like civil engineering, for example, or or uh, in, in, in areas of construction or uh, electronics or there textiles? Is, yeah, or? There's the IT is more and more mm -hmm. uh, up and going. I didn't really do a lot of research on this, but I know through Huawei, for example, there's a lot of uh, skills transfers uh, that, are, that, that are happening through IT companies. Huawei and ZTE are sort of the bigger ones uh, that have a big presence in Africa. Um, and there's um, increasing workshops and training programs uh, from that side. What's the cynical take on what Beijing's angle is on all of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a soft power uh, effort, isn't it? Sure. I mean, I, 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 again, I don't think that's cynical. But we don't I need mean, to read it as, just as that. I mean, I think... No, I mean, we don't need to read anything as, you know, just but, one thing. Um, well, true. And there's also like a marketing element there, too. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's Branding a lot of... China, right? Yeah, and, and marketing also in terms of in terms of actual hardware. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of agriculture. I mean, I'm going to show you how to do this with this particular instrument. Which and then I'll tell you where to buy it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I mean, same thing with Huawei. And the IT construct and the IT trainings also are specific to certain, you know, Chinese kind of brands of of actual hardware. So okay. yeah, it's soft power, but also economic opportunity market. Stuff. Yeah, uh -huh. it, it's both. Let's change directions a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about how Donald Trump's presidency has impacted Africa-China relations and maybe broader, more broadly South-South relations across the globe? Given more space to China to operate without uh, competition or criticism? I mean, I think, if, I mean, it, um, maybe it's a bit too early to say, obviously, right? But, um, but, but certainly I think there's a lot more room if especially we think about Yali, right? So the initiative, the young leaders, uh, young African leadership initiative, which was started by Obama, right? right? Which was this idea, in my sense, is that in fact actually kind of competes with China's model very much so because it's about people to people relations. It's about bringing skills young. Training, yes, it's about skills transfers and bringing sort of 
young leaders to experience the culture of being in the U.S., which really that's what China is doing through the Yangqing Academy, through, I mean, a lot of different initiatives to take thousands of African students to China to experience China. And so I think, I think if that initiative is not continued, so that definitely provides kind of grounds for saying, hey, um, you know, the U.S. is not doing as much in that sense. Also the summit, right? So Obama had the U.S.-Africa uh, summit. Um, are we going to see another summit <laughs> like that under this administration? Yeah, probably not. Um, and does that mean, I mean, it, it probably, if, if it's sort of the first time that the summit, when this uh, summit happened, U.S.-Africa uh, summit, obviously the criticism or the argument from the Chinese side was, don't look at how shiny the summit is. You're going to see how healthy it is if it continues happening. So, of course, we know that the China-Africa summit is healthy in that sense because every three years there is a summit and right. it's been consistent. Bigger and bigger, more and more countries participating, right. more and more participants, right. more and more money pledged. Exactly. So even though maybe like the media doesn't get as enamored with it as it was here in Washington, right? And so, uh, but there is consistency in it. And so, yeah, if there is no consistency and the summit dies... Well, then, of course, then uh, we, we can compare and then you, you have an idea that the relationship is not just is not interested in that people to people kind of or personal uh, uh, connection, which is really big in China's foreign policy in Africa. You don't think that Trump is going to feel the same way? Well, speaking of, of Trump, let's, let's talk about racism. <laughs> nice transition. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, for all of its efforts in China, I think racism is still one of the great challenges that, that China is going to face. Uh, I mean, racism still will rear its, its ugly head far too frequently in China. I mean, I've had personal experience of it myself. I spent a year in China uh, in 1988 to 1989 as a student. And during the winter of 1988-89, uh, there were a number of student protests specifically against African students. It was extremely ugly. There was no no explanation for it except that it was, I mean, it was racism of the most base sort. It was like, they're going out with our women. It was, uh, they, African students had taken some Chinese girls to a dance. <gasps> thought of it. Uh, but in, in recent years, I think, and with Trump's presidency uh, and the sort of global permission for a lot of ugliness that, 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 that his election has, and, and even his campaign really sort of gave, uh, we've seen um, not just uh, anti-African racism, but also sort of broad, broader Islamophobia, a lot of sort of xenophobia more more, more generally, but much of it directed against uh, the African community living in, in Guangzhou, a lot of it taking its criticisms, directly cribbing them from alt-right American sites. I mean, you can just see these talking points, this sort of trans just, you know, word for word. So let's 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 talk very candidly about racism in China. I mean, it's a topic that I understand. It makes a lot of Chinese people very uncomfortable. Uh, and just as this national conversation that we're having here in, in America makes people, a lot of white people, very uncomfortable. Um, so, l l Lena, you have some interesting ideas about, uh, about it. Uh, I'm just going to open that, throw that out there and, and see what, what, what do you think of, of the, the, the discourse on race in China today? That's a, that's a big question. Right? The, the water, pi <laughs> water pitcher is going to be thrown at me now. Uh, but <laughs> um, so I think it's kind of so through the the, the film documentary, the Guangzhou um, Dream Factory, right, right, which I wrote a review for and 
we can talk more about uh, about later um document kind of instances of where um there certainly are you know discriminations and and sort of instances of racism against the broader sort of um african communities living in china whether this is kind of the the, the most simple there's one moment in the film in the documentary that kind of talks about how sometimes just eating with with your hand is like you know it, 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 it's a Barbarous. thing yeah, exactly that, that that's made fun of right uh, or exactly that kind of mocked you know that oh goodness i mean there are people who still eat with their hands and stuff like that i mean it's 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 those those things that um kind of get especially like, and unfortunately if, if, if the, the documentary also talks a lot about and documents issues of stereotypes right so there's a african community in guangzhou you think oh um you know whatever it's it's, it's like aids and drugs and um there's there's all kinds of these stereotypes that travel unfortunately um and we also mentioned the wolf uh, warrior 2 movie which Yeah. Uh, still kind of depicts this kind of chinese kind of film that um is set in some imaginary vague, imaginary it's in african Nambia, right <laughs> it's set in Nambia. probably uh african country that's hit by by epidemic right and so the, in need for saving and so right. that that unfortunately those stereotypes uh which is by the way that film was the uh, the biggest chinese box office success ever and it's you know chinese rambo he goes in he saves these the good africans from the predatory bad africans and, and the predatory saves, and, and course, bad uh, american americans yeah. right 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 as well mm-hmm. the, the, the the bad africans mm-hmm. have hired these nasty american mercenaries right mm-hmm. yeah there there are all kinds of debates and conversations and also testimonies by several and also again there are lots of nuances when it comes to the questions of racism because there's also questions of class that come with it and talking to say a, a an african american experience in china is different from an experience of an african in china mm-hmm. and, and and not necessarily comes to the color but it comes with the idea of well and then you uh, you're you're a bit better off if you're an african american than you would be if you're an, an african simple uh and so there are questions like that of 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 you know um that kind of mix in this race with class with other questions and issues uh, lena are we beyond the point now where chinese can just claim ignorance and you know inexperience as an excuse of you know what the rest of the world calls sees as racism yeah You know, I I don't know if you recall that laundry uh, detergent uh, advert. I don't know if any of you have have seen it, where you know the black guy gets in a, water, a laundry machine and they use the detergent, and then he comes out uh, Chinese. Um, comes out looking like a Korean pop star, <laughs> <laughs> like really like fair ivory white skin, and that's just that's mm-hmm. yeah. That was actually based on in, an Italian commercial, is if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a trans-global racist issues, but it, it's known as the racist ad. The racist, the racist ad. ad. That, that's yeah, how it's yeah. The racist ad. It's yeah. it's known as the racist ad. Yeah, and which is I've, a fair descriptor. <laughs> I mean, it it is it is. I mean, and and I've I've seen like uh, arguments about how that's that comes from basic ignorance rather than than intentional you know racism and the explanation given a lot of times uh, regarding this ignorance is if you go back uh, you know a couple of decades ago in china 
uh, the whole idea is that you know it's a class it's a, it's an issue of class and then so just essentially people who mm. are in rural areas and they get to work in the farm and they get exposed their skin mm. is exposed to sunshine and so their skin is darker therefore you associate darker skin with lower class because it's the farmers it's the people who work the land and therefore there's this um, kind of prejudice against darker skin and so there's all kinds of these questions about like you know uh, you know fair skin being associated with kind of urban richer kind of thing and so right but i mean i would accept that argument perhaps if yeah. i knew that the people who made that particular advertisement were these ignorant villagers from central china but they're not unfortunately they're probably edu- college educated sophisticates from shanghai yeah. from some, work in some damned advertising agency yeah and they have no excuse i mean they, you know we we yeah. uh they 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 Take in. They have the internet, maybe a little bit limited, but you know they, they've seen plenty of American television. You know, the, they 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 ah, they should know better at this point, right? I mean, at, they should know better at this point. Mm-hmm. These things take a long time to change. I mean, white South Africans of even my parents' generation, many of them just can't get over the the old ways of thinking. I don't think this is something you can solve overnight. I mean, and there's also the other question of stereotypes the other way around, with stereotypes that Chinese communities face mm. in, in, you know, in lots of African countries as well. Well, I do want to leave some time for questions. So, uh, Lena, thank you so much. And thanks again to the good people of the University of Wisconsin's Africa Studies Program, African Studies Program, the Center for East Asian Studies, and the Institute for Regional and International Studies. Uh, And before we say goodbye, I do uh, want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Subscribe to our free email newsletter for a great daily dose of curated China news. Uh, You can follow SupChina on Twitter at at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at facebook.com slash up China News. So let's uh, go on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Uh, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, I've recommended a podcast previously called uh, 99% um, Invisible. Invisible. Yeah. Uh, and they just did a, a show about a building in Johannesburg uh, that anyone who's lived in Johannesburg knows. It's called the Ponty Tower. Uh, It's this big um, circular apartment building, one of the tallest apartment buildings in Africa, um, that was built when Johannesburg was still very much a segregated city. Uh, And Ponty became, uh, you know, one of the early gray zones in in, in Johannesburg where um, mixed race couples, even when it was still illegal, started living. And uh, uh, the uh, show is just about this building. Um, It's really interesting. The the building in my family, we used to call it the Tampon Tower, which might give you an idea of what it looks like. (laughs) It is quite a fascinating building. So that show. That's great. Uh, that's a very good podcast. I do recommend it. It's a, it's an excellent podcast. Ninety nine percent invisible, which is usually about design. It's sort of design, but in the broadest sense of, right, of right, the word, right, I would right, say. Right. Yeah. Okay, Lena, do you have a recommendation for us? Yeah, I recommend the um, the documentary Guangzhou Dream Factory. Actually, have that's a, a documentary made by Christian Bagley and uh, Erika Marcus, uh, which kind of documents the lives of uh, several African entrepreneurs um, in, in Guangzhou. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a really nice documentary. It's kind of very balanced. It documents uh, instances and stories of success, as well as others of challenges and issues, kind of like you mentioned, of race and other structural problems and challenges that come with uh, sort of this whole Guangzhou kind of becoming the destination for larger and larger African communities. And so 
Yeah, um, and I would le- recommend that you read Lena's review of it on Africa is a Country, that, that excellent, excellent blog. Uh, that, that's where, I, I mean, that's one of the first things that I read uh, that you had written. It's, it's, it's really very good. I think it's, I mean, as you point out in that review, it's rare that we, we hear a lot about so-called chocolate city, this area in Guangzhou, uh, where uh, there's a very, very large African population. But most of the time, it's uh, a, a mainstream American reporter writing about it. or whatever. We don't have enough places where you can actually hear voices of people who live there talking about their own mm-hmm. uh, experience mm-hmm. there. So mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. um, what you can find in this particular documentary, uh, mm-hmm. an, an excellent recommendation. And we'll put a link to it on our site, of course. Um, my recommendation is, uh, I think I, I mentioned on the podcast not long ago that uh, I was at a party and had, had run into Adam Brooks, who uh, we'll be having on. He's a former BBC correspondent uh, in China who quit his job and started writing spy fiction in, in the vein of John le Carre, except set in China. Um, I'm finally getting around to reading them. There's three novels. The, the, the last one just came out. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm hurriedly reading the three of them before we interview Adam uh, about his work. Uh, the first one is called Night Heron, The Night Heron. Uh, and it's really very compelling. It's, it's amazing. I mean, because, you know, it's fun to read just for anyone who's actually lived in Beijing because it's just so full of, of, of you know, perfectly accurate descriptions of the places that we know so well, the food we, we love so much. Uh, it's, it's nice to see somebody not just bungle uh, a place description of, of Beijing like this. So um, it's, it's uh, very good. He's an excellent writer. Um, so far, it hasn't been too soaked through with Orientalism or anything like that. There, there are some places where I, I've done a little bit of eye rolling, but uh, on balance, it's been quite good. So people, I, I want to thank Lena uh, once more, and thanks again to Neil Kodesh for making this all possible for us. A uh, big round of applause for, for, for Lena and for Neil and for everyone else. Uh, and I'm going to sign off here, and then we can take some questions. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SupChina News, and follow us on Twitter at, at SupChina News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.